0: Hey, Scott Walker here for another edition of Freedom Fighters. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, my scripture this morning when I get up, the one I post on uh, social media, was from the book of Psalms, Psalm 139.3. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Wow. I just thought about that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The last few weeks we've talked a lot about court cases. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But one of the biggest ones, of course, we, uh, a lot of people were focused their attention both physically in person. A lot of our folks from Young Americas Foundation, our local chapters, Young Americas for Freedom, showed up along with Students for Life and Susan B. Anthony Project and a whole lot of other groups out in front of the U.S. Supreme Court last week uh, when the court heard uh, right. remarks in terms of the, uh, the Dobbs case, the case in Mississippi uh, that talks about just one more law uh that's pushing up against roe v wade and pretending to protect unborn children and i'm not a lawyer we'll talk a little bit about this but i'm not a lawyer so i'm not going to give you all the legal arguments other than the fact that i i think for quite some time it's been clear that even without being a lawyer you can read all the way through the constitution and there's not a constitutionally guaranteed right to privacy that allows you to kill an unborn child and uh, I think compelling case would be made that remember that if Roe v. Wade is indeed overturned, and this might very well be the case, uh, I, I think it's likely to be at some point in the future. The question is whether it's in this instance with this case or whether it takes something else to do that. But if you believe uh, legally the legal belief and I was talking to. Former Attorney General uh, Ed Meese, who just turned 90 last week, uh, happy birthday to, to Ed Meese. He was the Attorney General under President Ronald Reagan, our 40th president, he actually been a longtime confidant of the president, even all the way back to his days when Ronald Reagan was governor of the state of California. But Ed Meese was surprised. He actually got a, uh, a, a column posted in the Washington Post. It's worth a read. He talks about the legal arguments about, why Roe v. Wade should be overturned. There are some who say, well, that's precedent. It's been around nearly five decades. How can they reverse precedent? Well, the Dred Scott decision, when you think about key things in the history of this country, uh, precedent itself is not enough. There, there are things that were a precedent because of the feelings at the time, but they certainly aren't what the law uh, should be, and, and in this case, what the Constitution represents. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that today, but it all starts out with this issue of life. So some people would say, as I started, I read from scripture, you know, again, from Psalms, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. There's other similar passages. You think about the call to Jeremiah and and, uh, others that have been mentioned in the Bible. You talk about even as we prepare those of us who are Christians for the celebration of the birth of our savior, Jesus Christ, on the 25th of December. And you think about in fact that each day I pull out. I don't just have an advent calendar. I actually have an advent box. The little boxes that pull out where there's little characters and you know beginning uh, of the month they pull out Elizabeth and and Joseph and Mary and and thinking about everything building up to that date. But but thinking early on when Elizabeth, who herself was blessed at at an age in which she didn't expect to have children, uh, to be pregnant with. A child that eventually became John you, you think about uh, who was named John I should say um, he always was a being it was just he was named John when he was born you think about Mary being confused and not understanding but but really having this sense of the Holy Spirit coming in and in, in calming her and making her understand and being joyous about it and following God's calling you think about Joseph who uh, was so freaked out about this they needed to send an angel to him. And finally he, you know, because he was going to do the honorable thing and just kind of uh, quietly uh, uh, put an end to this courtship and the the marriage. Uh, but he didn't. He listened to the angel. So a lot of people could say, okay, well, that's a religious belief. And certainly there's no doubt about it. And, and I don't think we should back away from that. Certainly that is our religious beliefs for people like myself who are Christian who share that. Certainly the Bible is very clear about defending innocent life. We, we see these references uh, multiple times, we understand that it's something that whether, it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Baptist, uh, whether you're Lutheran or Methodist, uh, it's just been uh, talked about for really thousands and thousands of years. But, but beyond that, I, one, I always am bothered by this argument that somehow people say, well, you know, you, you can't make decisions based on your religious beliefs. Well, the law itself is based on moral beliefs. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian. I mean, there are other, you know, you look at the whole Judeo-Christian ethic uh, or the basis upon which our founders uh, talked about the formation of this country, the founding documents. But a moral code is what it takes to live in a free and a just society. Uh, in fact, I would argue. Last year, when we started to see some of the riots and problems, it's that's exactly what happens. It makes it difficult to live in a free uh, and just society if people don't follow, if they don't have morals. They don't have to just be my morals. They don't have to be just the things I believe uh, because I believe in the Bible and the things that are there. But but the law itself is based on morals. I mean, there's a reason why we say it is illegal for you to take the life of an innocent human being uh that if you take it without you know certain circumstances there are exceptions for things like uh self-defense and where it's a matter of protecting your life versus taking an action that might take the the life of another Um, certainly there's debate you can have about the death penalty but there's a distinction there in the sense that it's not taking innocent life it's arguably punishment and again there's legitimate arguments you can make for and against that but in a just society, we make it very clear that first degree intentional homicide, whatever you want to define it as murder, uh, those are things that go all the way back to the Ten Commandments thou shalt not kill. Those are part of the moral code. You have to have a moral code to live in a free and a just society. And so that in of itself is compelling, but go beyond that. For all this talk over the last year and a half, almost two years, particularly during the height of the pandemic when people, People in general, particularly those on the left, say, oh, you know, I got to trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. Well, the science is clear. Science overwhelmingly shows that an unborn child is a human being. I mean, go back. You can look anywhere. You can go on. The other day I was Googling uh, this for a column I was working on, and it doesn't matter whether it's the, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, you look at this medical school, that medical school, this bit of research, it talks about, you know, the stages of development for an unborn child that in the earliest of times, you start to see the hands, and the facial features, and the beating heart. You can pick up uh, the the signals on you. I, I think recently, uh, some of you've heard me talk about this, but I, about two months ago, just over two months ago now, uh, my niece Isabella had a beautiful baby boy named Levi, and. You know, just seeing him, we, we, Toinette and I were there with him. I held him the day after he was born, the first day he came back home. He was six pounds, two ounces. You see those little fingers, you see his little eyes. He's got this great hair. In fact, lately it looks like he's almost got a punk hairdo. His hair is dark and thick and rich. And, you know, Isabella kind of brushes it up a little bit and it's fun. The other day I posted a picture of my mother. Gigi, as she called now, she's got a great shirt, great grandmother, uh, sitting there holding little Levi. He was in a beautiful little Christmas outfit, looked like a little elf, had his hat on and his slippers on, and his uh, his aunt, my niece, Eva, had gotten it for him. He looked great, and uh, just the picture of my mother holding him. She had have a t-shirt on that talked about how freedom isn't free. You got this baby, you got the Christmas tree. It's just... Man, it's like a Norman Rockwell picture, um, but it's just such a vivid reminder as it was twenty-seven plus years ago to Tonette and I when our son, our firstborn Matt, then a year later when Alex came around. Remember when Matt was even before he was born, the the first baby picture we still have to this day. We have it for both of our kids. Were the ultrasounds and the ultrasound technology back then was nothing like it is today. Today, you know, it's just multi-dimensional you can see it people show it off on their phones Isabella showed us Levi uh, before he was born on their ultrasound she was totally pumped and excited about that I still remember the very uh, kind of fuzzy looking one that we have but even back then with that technology uh, just shy of 30 years ago you could you could see you could see his head you could see his fingers actually was turned on his side so you could see the 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 four fingers, you could see his thumb looking like it was in, probably the way it was with the head structure. Uh, It looked like he was sucking on his thumb at that point, just like a baby would not long after birth. And so science overwhelmingly shows us, you know, this isn't some growth. This isn't something that just happens to be inside of a, a woman's body. It is a living thing. It is a human being. And if you take the life of that, you're taking the life of a human being. I think it's shocking for many of us when we heard so-called leaders in California say last week that they were going to be willing to create an abortion sanctionary where they would actually pay uh, the cost of people to come to their state. Think about that. You've got elected officials in, in, in a state, in this case California, saying they will pay people, they will pay their expenses to come and kill an an unborn living human being there it's amazing when you think about it i mean not just the the legal argument not just the religious argument not even just the scientific argument just think about that concept i still remember years ago when bill clinton running for president talked about abortion being safe legal and rare now the left doesn't want any of it. Either. They would actually celebrate this. They, they they think that this is some sort of triumph. It's not. It's not at all. That's why it is critically important that whether it's in the Dobbs case or some point in the near future, that the court return some sanity and in reverse Roe v. Wade, which would not end abortion. It'd be great if it did, just on a personal level, but but that means it would go back to the states. So there would be debate between the states. It would reinforce the importance of governors and state lawmakers across the country. Many states, for example, like mine in Wisconsin, still have on the books. It hasn't been enforceable because of that decision all the way back to 1973 by the Supreme Court of the United States. But if that decision were reversed, laws like the one in Wisconsin would actually be able to be uh, enforced again. And some states would vary. Some have put laws on recently. This one's been around for quite some time. Uh, Other states, probably like New York and California, would be uh, much more uh, wide open for an abortion on demand all the way up till birth. I remember a couple years ago, about this time, January two years ago, uh, the governor of Virginia at the time, Ralph Northam, was talking about a bill that one of the delegates, one of the legislators in, uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia was talking about, and this is a guy who's a doctor. It's even more amazing. He he just kind of said out loud what many of us thought, the left thought, but but uh, but didn't even mince words about it. But but they asked what would happen, and he said, "Well, the child would be born, uh, the child would be set aside, kept comfortable, and then the doctor and the family would decide what to do." This is after birth. This is after birth. I mean, this is. If you think about the logical extension about this, if the argument overwhelmingly is, well, someone should be able to choose, they shouldn't have to have this burden, it shouldn't have a negative impact on their life, why does that stop? Why does that stop after a child's been born? Certainly in this instance, it would still be moments after the birth, but but to my knowledge, in every state in this nation, if a day after birth, someone decided this is too much, this is overwhelming, and they took the life of that child newborn child they'd be charged with a crime might be intentional homicide or some variation of that uh, in i believe all 50 states here in this uh, this great country so why is it that a day later it's a crime but all the way up to birth and even in the case of what northam was talking about even moments after birth it's not it's something that those on the radical left defend I think this is incredibly, incredibly uh, disturbing, but it's all part of an interesting process, not just when it comes to life. But you think about the courts. Uh, You just saw this Jesse Smollett uh, case come out. It's interesting that the juries, maybe not officials in the court, maybe not officials in the government, but but juries of people's peers, in this case in Chicago, seem to have gotten right. I think most of us, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white, uh, whether you're straight or gay or whatever it might be, when they heard this case of a Hollywood actor, a black man who happens to be gay, who's a Hollywood actor, claiming what he claimed, you know, for a lot of folks, it just didn't pass the smell test. Of course, in Hollywood, in the radical left, there was justice for Jesse. It it was uh, the battle cry of people like AOC and many in the Hollywood liberal elite And some, even up until this week, were still rabidly defending him, even though it was fundamentally clear. I mean, think about how cynical you have to be to stage something like this. To think that somehow people would think that people, because of their race or because of their political beliefs, would somehow do something like this. It's just outrageous. And thankfully, again, a jury of his peers realized that, no, this was Uh, this was outrageous that uh, that that indeed he did fake this and he's still trying to claim somehow this would be reversed but i don't think so it it's given some faith to me at least in in the in the justice system at least as it relates to juries because whether it was this case whether it was the arbory case where you had three white men who attacked and ultimately killed the 25 year old black man who was out jogging they tried to lamely claimed that it was uh, self-defense. The evidence overwhelmingly showed it wasn't. In that case, they were found guilty. And I think most Americans, regardless of race, looked at that and said that made sense. You look in Kyle, the Rittenhouse case in Kenosha, something I'd spelled out well in advance. Last year, when the charges were first brought up, I said, you know, this jury's gonna be made up of people from Kenosha County. They understand what was happening. This wasn't some random act. This wasn't somebody walking or running down the street. This was a situation, there were riots going on, which we could spend a whole nother discussion podcast talking about that, how the the woke weakness just doesn't work, how a liberal Democrat Governor Tony Evers should have called in the National Guard early on, how even the Kenosha News, the local newspaper, which has a history of endorsing Democrats, knocked him for fanning the flames of the riots even before the rioters appeared by his comments, and similar comments made by then-candidate Joe Biden and others along the way when you look at people jumping to conclusions, in fact, Biden himself tried to claim that Rittenhouse and others involved with him were, were white supremacists, even though there's absolutely no evidence of that. I'm, I'm sure Kyle's still waiting to hear some sort of a apology for that. But again, a jury understanding the circumstances, having lived in Kenosha, knowing the riot. And then of course, on the stand, seeing the clear cut evidence of one of the people, one of the three people were shot, the the sole survivor, um, uh, pointing out when asked under oath you know did he point the firearm at him when his hands were up no it was only when he pointed his gun at him that well that that pretty much defines self-defense now it's interesting this week i believe in one of the shows uh kyle rettenhouse was on someone congratulated him and for someone who's pretty young still in the big scheme of things he actually had a, a moment of wisdom. I don't know if it's come from digesting this all. He said, Well, that's not something to be congratulated about. He, he certainly, uh, obviously, anybody would be uh, thankful for the jury having found him not guilty because of his defense of self defense. But it's still tragic that the whole situation had to happen. It's why I go back to saying if Jacob Blake, the individual, who all the attention was drawn to because of the multiple shots fired on him by a police officer. But then later, as we learned the rest of the information with other videos and testimony, found out that multiple times he'd resisted arrest, that actually tased him twice, that he had a police officer in a headlock, that he had an outstanding warrant, that the mother of one of his children had actually called the police on him, which is why they came in the first place, that he wasn't supposed to be there, that he wasn't doing what the officers instructed, and as he came around on the driver's side of the car, he actually was reaching for a knife, which the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin, a Democrat confirmed, was actually found on the floor of the car on the driver's side. If he had just listened at that point, none of this would have happened. If local officials and the governor had called out an adequate amount of of uh, resources be it the national guard or other law enforcement if they'd gotten control if they didn't just let people run ravage if if they didn't do as cnn claimed that somehow this was a fiery but mostly peaceful protest it wasn't there might have been protesters but what we saw at that time in august of 2020 was an out just outright riot and all these things could have been prevented which leads me to the last thing talking about when it comes to all these different court cases juries understand this juries overwhelmingly we've seen evidence of late have gotten it right where the system fails this is not with the juries it's with many of the people within it particularly many of the woke liberal radical elites we see that in milwaukee county where the district attorney john chisholm has thrown one of his prosecutors an assistant district attorney under the bus claiming it was the heir of that individual although increasingly we're seeing reports both on talk radio in Milwaukee and from local network affiliates that this doesn't seem to be an anomaly. This seems to be a part of a pattern. It's part of a pattern not just in Milwaukee County, but what we see across the nation, particularly in the coast, in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York City, but increasingly it's creeping into the heartland of America in Chicago and Milwaukee and elsewhere. It's this idea of bail reform and criminal justice reform. And as I've said before, I'm all for finding ways to help people, particularly those fighting opioid and illegal drug addictions, low-level crimes, uh, where an alternative to getting them in treatment might be a better approach going forward. But in cases like what we saw with the gentleman, not even a gentleman, I don't call him a, with the person, with the man who drove his red SUV into a parade, the Waukesha Christmas Parade, less than three weeks ago this is someone who was out not just a low bell this is someone who was a career criminal who shouldn't have been on the streets in the first place for goodness sakes within that same month he allegedly had gone after the mother of one of his children with that same vehicle trying to mow her down this is someone who who didn't just accidentally go into the parade route who wasn't on a police chase this is someone who could have easily as many detectives testified during the charging actions Could have easily turned off to a different way, but no, instead actually accelerated through the parade route, killing at least six people, five older adults and one eight-year-old child, critically injuring many others, putting in traumatic experiences for all those along the parade route. This is someone who should have never been out in the streets. Yeah, I think we should have bail reform, but not lower bail or limiting cash bail. As people like AOC and even people like Mandela Barnes, a candidate for United States Senate in the state of Wisconsin, are calling for. Instead, I think we should have bail reform the opposite way. We should have no bail. If someone is a serious threat to the public, like this individual was in the Waukesha parade massacre, they shouldn't be on the streets at all. Keep them safe from the public. The media has largely glossed over this. In the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, they ignored the facts. They ignored the evidence. There's still many cases promulgating a false narrative, a fake news approach, and yet largely over... You actually had CNN and The Washington Post talking not about the individual, but about how a vehicle or an SUV plowed in here. It wasn't the vehicle or SUV. It was this individual, a career criminal. He just happens to be a black man with a history... Of, of radical statements, anti-white racist statements that he's posted on social media. But that's about the individual. And this individual being out on the street ultimately led to the death of at least six. Innocent life matters. Whether it's the unborn, uh, whether it's someone who was just jogging down the street, looking into a construction site, never should have Face the the kind of abuse and ultimately horrible death, Uh, whether it's people who were trying to protect their own businesses or, in this case, in Waukesha, just marching down a parade route, trying to get ready for the holiday season and celebrating Christmas. Innocent life matters. You know, the ultimate role of the government is not to govern, it's to protect our rights. Declaration of Independence, It spelled out very clearly. All people are created equal. We're endowed by our creator, that being God, not the government, but God gives us certain rights, inalienable rights, can't take them away. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are amongst those rights, right at the top of the list. And the role of the government is not is nothing more in its fundamental sense than protecting those very rights that aren't rights granted by the government, they're rights given to us by God, and they all begin with life. I'm Scott Walker. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next time for another great podcast on Freedom Fighters, and until then, keep fighting for freedom.